0: Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright here with Carrie Plitt, beaming in from Oxford. How are you, Carrie? Hi, Octavia.
1: I'm okay. I'm buoyed by the results of the American election. Wait, can Um, you just say
0: that word one more time for me, please?
1: Buoy. Do you say you say boy? I do, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Buoy is a
0: great word though.
1: I am really scared. About what Trump might do to stay in power but I have to say it felt so good on Saturday to have a release and feel joy and relief in a way that I just haven't in a long time how
0: about you yeah totally although I have to admit I don't think I've completely unnumbed yet like I found the anxiety of the run-up to the election and that interminable week of vote counting so intense that I think I dissociated really. And I don't think I've quite reconnected all the wires yet. So I feel a bit like I'm hovering above my like joyful relief and just kind of going, wait, but really, is it, um, can I? <laughs> <laughs> um, but also we're, you know we're in lockdown number two, which makes opportunities for real release a bit harder to come by. And I think that's part of it too. I feel like I need to gather, you know, with people and have a collective experience of that relief and that joy. And we Definitely. tried to do it over Zooms and friends and I, but obviously we peaked too soon. We started on the first night of the election, and it was like <laughs> <laughs> schoolboy era. We are at Minnesota seventeen, which is kind of wild. Yes, I know, sweet seventeen. I feel like I say it's wild say. every single number, though, which is absurd. <laughs> so maybe it's not wild at all. Because guess what? Follows sixteen, carry seventeen. <laughs> no, I love, I love that you find everything wild.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's good to have a healthy sense of uh, surprise at, at
0: and the wonder. End of the world. I mean, yeah. it also helps to have a very bad short-term memory. I think that like, encourages <laughs> it.
1: But it is minisode seventeen, and whether you're new to the show or an old hand, welcome and thanks for tuning in. The format for these minisodes between full shows is. For the next half hour-ish, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic at hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately with the usual musical interludes
0: chosen by Eddie. Yes, and because of everything we just mentioned, today's minisode is dedicated to optimism. So hang tight for a chat about how it feels to finally start allowing yourself to tentatively get your hopes up. What with the news of a viable COVID vaccine in the works and a new regime in the White House on the horizon, it's possible you might be having an unusual feeling, one that you vaguely recognise but you can't quite put your finger on. Well, my friends, it might just be optimism, and we are here to talk about it. After the election result, friends in the States kept telling me they were feeling real joy for the first time since Trump was elected. And seeing as we talked about joy at the start of the first lockdown, it feels like a good symmetry to try thinking about optimism at the start of the second. And I think especially because as this COVID crisis drags on, we're going to need it to carry us through the next bit and the next chunk of uncertainty. So we thought we'd think about what it means to feel optimistic now and how does it work for us? How can we nurture it in a helpful way? And are there any problems with clinging to optimism? So let's start with a simple question. My dear Carrie Plitt, do you feel optimistic right now? My dear Octavia Bright, it's an interesting question. We have
1: spoken in the past about our definitions of optimism, and I am definitely someone who likes to keep low expectations. So in some ways, the election in the US was a beautiful surprise for me because I had incredibly low expectations. I think some people might see that as pessimism, but I see it as a kind of like
0: realistic optimism. It's pragmatic, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it's pragmatic. But I consider it optimistic because I kind of hope that things will turn out better than I assume they will be. Gotcha. that makes sense? Yeah, so you're kind of hedging. I, I play a lot of mental games yeah. with myself. You're hedging your bets there. <laughs> you're
0: like, I'm not going to actually... Get behind the optimistic thought because then if I'm wrong, it will be devastating. But I'm sort of actually having the optimistic thought, but I'm going to keep my feet in the pragmatic perspective.
1: Yeah, exactly. I worry about climate change. I worry about the rise of white supremacy. I worry about war and poverty. But I also think that to exist in the world and fight, you just can't be totally defeatist about those things. I think if you believe that everything's going to shit, there's no reason to keep living and fighting and, and believing in a better world. And I do, I, I like to believe that a better future is still possible, that most people are good, but also be pragmatic about what is possible. So is that optimism? That's how I feel right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I find it super interesting that you went straight to like big global issues to talk about what optimism means to you. And it makes sense. But I find at the moment, I'm having to keep things really scaled down in order to connect with that feeling. Um, Because sadly, I, you know, I don't feel optimistic about any of the things you just listed. Like I don't feel optimistic about climate change and I don't feel optimistic about the problems of war and poverty. And I wish I felt more optimistic about the rise of white supremacy, but I don't, but I can feel optimistic about things closer to me. And so that's where I try and start because I feel like it can be a, a building perspective so like, I don't know, this might sound really naff, but I try to begin each day connecting with a feeling of optimism about simply what the hours ahead might hold, you know, and like my ability to find it wild that we're on Minnesota 17, for example. <laughs> I think it kind of comes from that perspective, like a a willingness to be uplifted by tiny, tiny things. So, you know, even if it's, even if it's just like I'm going to make breakfast and it's going to be delicious, <laughs> even if it's that small scale. And I guess the dictionary definition of optimism is hopefulness and confidence about the future or the success of something. So that can be something huge and global, or it can be something really immediate and really small. And I think I'm better at applying that idea on a more intimate scale at the moment, just because it takes even more resources and inner reserves to try and apply that to like a bigger thing. But I think also... We've been so scarred by the last few years, you know. Whether you're listening from America or the United Kingdom, we've had Brexit, you guys have had Trump. I mean, and other parts of the world have been suffering in their own ways under their own regimes. It doesn't necessarily feel safe to feel hope or optimism because things have been so tough and quite relentlessly tough, especially when you think about the climate crisis, too. So, I feel like this last week, my social media feeds have been absolutely full of people using words like tentative um, and gently and then optimistic mm. because everyone's feeling so fragile. And it's I, like, I think of us all as like these little moles emerging from our burrows, like blinking in the light, thinking, really, can we? <laughs> or are we going to get <laughs>
1: stepped on, you know? I certainly share that tentative feeling. You can't trust it. And it's like a muscle we haven't actually been using all this time. So it's atrophied and we have to kind of test it out and and see how it works. And I guess the question is, is it is it possible to cultivate optimism? I mean, it sounds like it's something that you do yourself in your life.
0: Yeah, it's funny because I think it's something that it's I think it's I would say that I have an innately fairly optimistic perspective. My parents my father was a true optimist and my mother is probably a pessimist and so I have both of these like those were my like I was exposed to those worldviews consistently all the time so I think I have them both very much in me but then the cultivation of that optimism is something that came around separately in response to um, depression and like handling a bunch of other stuff so I think it's both but yeah I do think it's something that you can cultivate and I think it's something that A bit like joy, I think when it's done cautiously and mindfully, it can be passed between people. And I think you can, if you're cultivating it within yourself, I think you're in a position to help cultivate it in somebody else as well. I don't know how you feel about that.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think we are predisposed to feel a certain way about the world. And I also think that we have the power to change the way that we perceive things. And it's more difficult for some people than others. And it's hard for everyone to change in that way, but it's possible. I mean, I, th- I was thinking about CBT a lot when I, I was thinking about optimism, because in some ways CBT is kind of a therapeutic version of taking a more optimistic view of the world. And I also think that, you know, even though I didn't think about my personal life at all when I was thinking about optimism, you know, I I don't think you can separate, as you say, the way that we perceive ourselves in our own lives from the way that we think about the trajectory of the world and, and of other people.
0: Yeah, exactly. And feeling powerless or feeling powerful is such a fraught word, but feeling like you have agency or feeling like you don't have agency, you know, that will change your entire worldview as well. And I think that, you know, being being conscious of the ways we connect with other people and the fact that as you say, we have the agency within ourselves to change our perspective, if we're able to reach for that. But I think there's a flip side of that that's very complicated. Because if you take that perspective, it can sound as though if you're failing to find optimism, it's because you're not trying hard enough to like, pull it pull yourself up by the bootstraps and like, flip your world around. And actually. When you lose touch with that sense of agency, whether through depression or illness or simply exhaustion or grief, bereavement, you feel completely powerless and completely alienated. And in my experience, one of the things that can help reconnect a person to that agency is sharing real emotional intimacy with other people not just being blindly optimistic about things and saying oh don't worry it'll get better you'll you'll forget her or, or whatever <laughs> you know it's actually like for example if someone's gone through a terrible breakup you know the worst thing that people often say is that you'll move on you'll forget them and when someone's in the grief of that that loss that's not what they want to hear actually the most helpful thing you can probably do is share your experience of a similar loss. And and be with them in the, in that pain and be like but look i came through it and so can you like that's giving someone the tools to feel optimistic about their difficult situation whereas standing there and being like you'll move on plenty of fish in the sea you know that's terrible that's kind of denying somebody's pain i know i know what you mean about a kind of blind
1: optimism being incredibly annoying like i i think it's worth bringing up a literary example here, which is Pollyanna. Yes, perfect. Um, <laughs> and I mean, that is a 1913 American children's novel by Eleanor H. Porter, and I, which I never read, but I remember watching the movie as a kid. And she's an orphan who essentially just always is positive about things. And Pollyanna has become a kind of stand-in for somebody who's eternally
0: optimistic. And that is annoying. It's very annoying. And kind of offensive isn't it yeah totally it, well it can be a kind of naivety at best and at worst it's like denial um yeah <laughs> extreme denial <laughs> like a friend of mine calls it happy fascism and you know when you meet someone who's just like relentlessly like my life is perfect and everything's wonderful and everything's great all the time and you're like this is you're this is you're not being honest you're not being honest with yourself and you're not being honest with the rest of the world so like how can you hope to have true connection What we're talking about here, it becomes a political issue, right? Like it becomes something that actually at taken to its extreme, you can use to oppress others.
1: Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And it's really important that we address it. Because there is a kind of blind optimism that is not only annoying, but dangerous, not least because it's often a perspective afforded to the unoppressed, you know, it's a privilege to be optimistic in many ways. And optimism is conditioned by what we have come to expect in our lives and and if we're privileged not to have gone through losing your legs or being racially abused for instance i can see how you would have a more optimistic view of other people and of the world and insisting that somebody else's reality is false and that they don't have a reason to be pessimistic can be an act of real oppression at the same time i wouldn't want to go all the way down the path of We can never fully understand somebody's perspective of the world. Therefore, we can't be optimistic about anyone besides ourselves.
0: Yeah, I think it's true. I think like most things, it's important to think more deeply about it, right? Um, And as you say, if your optimism is the kind that essentially denies the reality of other people or requires you to be ignorant of the reality of other people in order to keep it intact, which is definitely something that people who enjoy a number of privileges Uh, can be guilty of right like when you see people of a particular sort of um, level of wealth and status living in a satellite place so that they never have to face the realities of street homelessness or you know the complexities of a truly integrated and mixed society that's a a version of it right like you sure you Mm -hmm. can stay optimistic about your very hashtag blessed life if you're never having to experience vicariously the pain of others. And if your optimism is predicated by their ignorance, then it's an act of oppression to maintain it. And it's nothing to do with genuine hope about the future. It's a very self-serving way of maintaining your positivity in the face of other people's distress, right? Um, Mm. But if you can keep your optimism in balance with reality, then it's great. And I think it's really vital to have optimistic people Close to the nexus of power as well. Like if you only have pragmatists and pessimists, I don't think it works. I think you need a no. mix. You know, you need maybe you don't want your optimist to be like driving the bus, but you need one on board because if you don't have one on board, you might never get going. And I think that, I think that there's a way of understanding optimism as a deeply creative perspective. So how do you feel about so-called optimistic books? Because in the joy, Minnie said we talked about how a bit like we were just saying with Pollyanna, like upbeat books and art can be looked down upon. It's easy to look down upon them. But how do you feel about optimistic books?
1: Yeah, I was thinking about this. um, Also, because I think there are a number of ways you can think about what an optimistic book might be. One of the ways you could maybe define that is books about self-improvement, which as I get older, I feel less and less snobby about. I think people seek out books about self-improvement and find real comfort in them and roadmaps for genuinely starting to think about how they change their habits which as discussed is one of the hardest things to do so I think that's one version of positive books I mean I think the problem sometimes with those books is they promise so much and they usually can't deliver on those promises and and that's why sometimes I worry about putting books out into the world that give a false sense of what is possible. Another way I think to define positive books is, is kind of nonfiction books that take a really positive view of history or of the future. And there are plenty of versions of that on on really all sides of the political spectrum. You know, I think the idea of hope comes into this and what we discussed with Jenny Awful about the obligatory note of hope. And like, even in books about the climate crisis, authors feel obliged to be be like, but humans may just pull together and, and make this all okay. And I do think in the industry, there is a sense that books can't be relentlessly negative, because they're really hard to read. And it's been really interesting to see what people seem to be seeking out during a time of real crisis. And that tends to be books that are hopeful and positive. Um, And that can take a number of different forms. That can be books like Factfulness by Hans Rosling and some members of his family about, you know, why the world is actually a better place than we think it is. Um, They can also just be love stories where people get together and are happy. And I think there's a real value to those kinds of stories too I don't know how what do you think
0: I haven't heard of factfulness but I actually read a book that sounds very similar recently called humankind by Ritka Bergman Bregman I think actually which is not a book I would have picked up but it was for a, a podcast um, book club the broccoli content book club which I don't think it's come out yet but um, we had a really really interesting conversation about it the three of us um and interestingly two out of the three were not necessarily that into it and I better tell you that I was one of the two um because (laughs) it you know it's a it's an interesting book in a lot of ways it has lots of very interesting um details and case studies in it but the general thrust of it is humankind is actually good not bad so he's like the Rousseauian do you say that Rousseauian you know what I mean the Rousseau idea that human beings are good and that like we do see the best in ourselves under times of duress and actually the way that history has been recorded has given us a false idea of how bad and mucky and evil humanity actually is and it's a nice idea for sure and he may be right like his thesis may be right But I found the way that the book was written to be sentimental and manipulative in a way that I didn't appreciate because it felt when you're dusting over the top of so many huge issues, but not going into any depth, I don't know what your research is made up of, you know, and I felt quite manipulated. And then the death knell came in the last section where he has a quote from Richard Curtis as the epigraph. And I was like, get me the fuck out of here. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, it's so interesting because the other example I was thinking of of books like that is The Better Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker. And these are all white dudes writing these books. And I don't – I think it gets back to our discussion about when optimism can be politically oppressive. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the people who respond most to these books and who tend to write them are the ones that are least likely to have been oppressed. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, got it in one. And it does feel patronizing when you're reading it and you are either more aware of different intersections of oppression because you have experienced them yourselves or because you are just more aware of those things because you are more connected to people who have experienced them. You read these books and you're like, Wowie. So you're telling me to just feel a little better about things <laughs> as a solution <laughs> to like the fight that feminism continues to need to wage against patriarchal oppression. Like, cool man. Yeah, cool story, bro. Yeah.
1: But at the same time, I there is a kind of positive book that I love. And a positive kind of character that I love too. So I was thinking about this, it's like I love Leslie Nope, right? I think that's a great example I don't know of someone... who
0: Leslie Nope is. Have you watched Parks
1: and Recreation? No. Oh. Okay. Well, Parks and Rec. Have you watched The American Office? I hate the office, even the American one, yeah, I hate it, okay. Maybe you would also hate Leslie nope slash Parks and Rec, but this is a show set in the government office of a small town in Indiana, and it's really it's kind of about public service in a very inspiring way, but the central character is this this woman named Leslie Nope, who is optimistic about everything, and no matter what. Believes deeply in the ability of government to change people's lives and to do good things. And she never loses that optimism throughout the whole series. And it's an incredibly positive series. And she's an incredibly positive person. And somehow it is not grating. Somehow it is uplifting um, and beautiful that she maintains her positivity in the face of so much neglect and I mean obviously it's a fictional show so the fictional show is on the side of making her seem like a good person but yeah I love that show
0: people are crazy I love positive it. stuff yeah <laughs> well the other thing I was thinking of was Paddington Bear yeah who is like one of the most charming characters in literature and what makes him so charming is he just has this relentlessly positive outlook but it's not irritating you just root for Paddington and his marmalade sandwiches It's, it's all you want is for him to get his next marmalade sandwich and have a caper and for it all to turn out okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think the success of the Paddington movies recently has is not coincidental. Right. I think that that kind of perspective was very appealing to people in the midst of so much strife. And it's it's also interesting to me that so often these really optimistic characters are animals or children.
0: Yeah, for sure. I wonder why do you think it's I like guess. we lose the ability to feel optimistic as we grow up from being <laughs> a cat <laughs> I mean that's
1: certainly the narrative that we're often given about coming of age isn't it it's, a, it's kind of losing your innocence and innocence is a kind of naivety and, and off, often an optimism about the world that is then um shattered
0: yeah, I do think though you can be informed and still optimistic. I don't think you have to I don't think you have to lose your optimism as you grow from naivety into knowing this. But I think that what we've been talking about in this conversation is like I don't know getting deeper into the idea of what optimism actually is and if you take it on its very surface level then yes probably it is harder to maintain just a blind hopefulness as you grow up and you become welcomed into the world of adult problems and the news cycle and like all these things Mm -hmm. that just weren't a feature of your daily mental landscape as a child. But I've met plenty of kids who are not optimistic. (laughs) Yeah. And I've met plenty of adults who are optimistic. Yeah. Yeah. Pish posh. Pish
1: posh. Exactly. <laughs> we can be optimistic with a healthy dose of reality and a sense of others' lived experience.
0: There we go. I think we've nailed it. That's it. Sorted. Hello, it's Octavia Bright and I'm back here with Carrie Plitt to give you our cultural recommendations, which are things we've been doing lately that are not reading, that have been bringing us joy and maybe even making us feel optimistic, probably largely fixed to our living spaces considering (laughs) current situation. But um, Carrie, tell me, what's your first tip?
1: My first tip is something that did bring me genuine joy and actually relates to our discussion right now of positivity. And it is the first two Bill and Ted's.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. You may know that the third Bill and Ted movie finally came out earlier this year and I'd never seen the first two. And so Eddie and I and Alice, who is in our bubble, decided to have a kind of marathon over a number of weekends of all three of the movies. And they were just exactly what I needed. The first two movies were made in 1989 and 1991. And they're so schlocky. They're about these two teenagers in a terrible band. They live in San Dimas, California. They're sort of slackers, but they're incredibly positive and kind. Their catchphrases: be excellent to each other. And they have to do various things in the movies, including traveling back in time and going to hell and meeting some sort of like alien called station, which didn't make any sense to me in the second movie. But anyway, in order to save the universe in various ways it's so silly it's so nonsensical it doesn't teach you anything about history which is kind of hilarious because the first one is all about history and it's like this, this just hasn't alice was incensed also that they'd clearly hired just an american he was actually we looked it up he was australian man to play um napoleon Amazing. <laughs> like fake french words anyway but it just somehow works i think Because it doesn't take itself very seriously, just as the characters don't take themselves very seriously. There is the, I should say, occasional sexist and racist kind of misstep, as maybe is true for a lot of movies made in the 80s and 90s now. But anyway, I just, I I really enjoyed them. They're very sweet they're very
0: positive and I think
1: maybe I finally get the Keanu thing
0: oh my god what do you mean finally where have you I mean now I understand more why you didn't have it to begin with yeah Bill and Ted are like the foundation of the Keanu thing
1: I can see it I mean it's just there's something kind of otherworldly but grounded at the same time he's like it's like a paradox Mm -hmm. yeah but anyway, the third one is not so good. So I wouldn't necessarily go on it. <laughs> I didn't see it because oh, was it's, like, it's, it's going to break my heart. Yeah, it's too self-referential. But anyway, loved him. Bill and Loved
0: Ted. him. <laughs> Amazing. How about you? Well, my first one is, um, I guess it, it's more about history than that, but it's about Reframing things from history that we think we know and we don't really know. It's a podcast called You're Wrong About, which loads of people I know seem to have been listening to recently. And it's really been keeping me going the last few weeks because they do basically the premise is here's this thing you think you understand, but we're going to show you the ways in which you don't get it. Um, It's presented by journalists and writers Sarah Marshall and Michael Hobbs. And they have the nicest rapport between them. The way that they explain things to each other, they both just sound like incredibly like emotionally intelligent, open-minded people who are very emotionally invested in being fair and being empathetic about the subjects that they're coming to. So it it has this like very lovely energy to it, even though they rib each other and they're quite acerbic sometimes and funny, but they're also they really bring their full selves or so it seems, to the project. so you you get that wonderful quality that you find in the best podcasts where you feel like you get to know the hosts and you feel like they're your friends but they're also seriously well informed (laughs) and telling you things that you didn't know but their real crowning glory I think is the series they've done on Princess Diana and I, I didn't I would never if you'd said to me a year ago you're going to be listening to a podcast about Princess Diana and her treatment by the royal family I would tell you to get fucked but it's been an absolute like blessing because it's i think hearing the whole fandango through the perspective of two americans first of all is brilliant because they're just consistently like what is the royal family this is completely (laughs) absurd which is how i personally feel about the royal family so that's kind of nice and affirming but also the way they treat the subjects of diana is is with so much empathy and so much humanity, which is how she was never allowed to be treated by the press in this country. And it's been a fascinating experience for me to realize just how indoctrinated I was by the British perspective, even though in my adult thinking, I've related to the idea of Princess Diana in a different way. But hearing it through, through the lens of these two thinkers and writers, it's fascinating. And it's It's a completely tragic story, and you know it's a tragic story before you begin, but they find a lot of things that we can learn from the story, and it feels like a real, actually honest tribute to the woman that she was, Um, and it doesn't feel exploitative, like so much media concerning Princess Diana does, and it's obviously feeling especially relevant right now because they're about to unearth all the mess with the BBC and Martin Bashir and whether he forged a bunch of documents to kind of strong arm her into well strong arm is the wrong word but convince her into giving him that interview mm. um so yeah I, I recommend listening even if you think it wouldn't interest you because it's so humane and it's I think very helpful to listen to something that's so humane at the moment
1: Yeah. Well, I listened to it on your recommendation. I completely agree. It's brilliant. I mean, it's also just great narrative storytelling, the way that they structure it. It's that they're great at telling a story and picking out details and they're very quick. Like they have a lot of quips and um, little jokes that make it really fun and they come back to ideas. And I think what you say about being empathetic is so right that they're empathetic to everyone in the story, not just Diana, to Charles, the person that I think in some ways, gets the least empathy in British culture. Wait, that's not true. That's not true. I'm (laughs) calling you on that. hate (laughs) Charles. No, 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 no. My Republican husband better not listen to this because
0: he'll be very disappointed in me. But anyway. We um, should make it clear that that is a British Republican, not American Republican. Yes, yes. Sorry. Very much not American Republican. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine if you were married to a secret Republican. no.
1: No, never. Never, Octavia. Never. Um, But yeah, I, I really loved it. And it was also, I think it's really perfect for listeners our age, kind of millennial listeners. It did a similar thing to what the Bill Clinton slow burn did, which was it was like something that I had, I knew about, but was a little bit too young to understand. And hearing it again was revelatory. And yeah, made me realize how little I knew.
0: Absolutely. Well, for me, I went and laid flowers at Kensington Palace with my mom. Wow. Yeah, and not because we were like hugely invested in the royal family or Princess Diana as an individual, but my mom was like, "This is a cultural moment," and and had a lot of empathy for the person, you know, the woman involved. But I remember, I remember people were crying in the streets, and people were stopping and offering each other tissues and being very warm towards one another. There was like a real feeling of community and I remember going and laying these flowers down and we couldn't even get within god 15 20 meters of the gates because there were already so many bouquets
1: fascinating
0: Um, it was it was absolutely wild and I will never ever forget watching the procession and seeing those two boys walking behind or in front I can't remember of the carriage with her coffin inside it and I was about the same age as William I suppose maybe a little younger and I mean, just mind blowing. Absolutely mind blowing. The brutality of it. My God. Yeah. 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 Anyway, do listen to you Wrong About. It's great. <laughs> um, what's your next?
1: OK, well, so I don't actually understand what I've been doing for the last two months because I am really scraping the barrel for recommendations here. I like I have very few. But, and this is kind of something I mentioned very briefly in a minisode before, but if you will indulge me, I would like to once again recommend the New York Times crossword puzzle. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You really are scraping the barrel, babes. (laughs) But honestly, like the only thing that I managed to learn and get better at during this period of lockdown has been doing crossword puzzles. And I've gone from really struggling to to complete they get they get harder as the week goes on. Um except Sunday is kind of equivalent to a Wednesday, but it's bigger. But I went from like struggling with a Monday or a Tuesday to I can do a full Sunday. And I've even done a full Saturday. It's the most satisfying thing in the world. I love it. I do it every morning when I wake up now. And my sister and I have started doing them together over Zoom. And it's just making me very happy. And I would recommend it to somebody who like wants something that is both fun, but gives them a sense of satisfaction.
0: Yeah, crosswords are great. That sounds wonderful that you can really track your progress like that. And it's such a, it's training your mind to think in a particular way, isn't it? Yeah. And and you,
1: you realize it's so satisfying too, because you figure out tricks you kind of like it feels like the system that you have to crack but once you do it all fits together in this really pleasing way and I just never expected that to actually happen and also there's a really delightful crossword blog for the New York Times every day by this woman called Deb Amlin called Wordplay and she writes about like the clues that she liked, and they have a little note from the constructor, and then everyone comments under the blog. And it's just this wonderful community of people who love crosswords. It
0: sounds great. And want
1: to talk about them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I actually do want to give it a go.
1: Give it a go. It's The New York Times one is very American. I often think that while I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. It's like I would not know this if I had not lived there for 20
0: years or whatever.
1: I love it excellent Um, what's what's your next one
0: my next one is actually also it's another podcast but this one is very different it's called appearances and it's by sharon mashihi but it's brought to you by um they're called mermaid palace which is caitlin Prest's audio company caitlin Prest, who did the heart which i think probably quite a few people who Mm. listen will recognize and remember and this is like i mean it defies categorization which you know is very much my jam it's listed as fiction but it's basically audio auto fiction that breaks the fourth wall and is performance art as well as reportage it's absolutely one of the most original things I've heard in the format and Sharon Mashihi is a genius really I think actually I didn't like it straight away it took me a while to find my relationship to it because the themes are pretty confronting in a way that is so important and so brilliantly done it's, it's very difficult to describe actually but basically it's about a woman who is trying to decide whether or not to have a baby and she's in her like mid to late 30s so it's kind of bang on like my demographic a lot of m- my friends and I like the way we're thinking about the world at the moment but in order to understand her motivations and like figure this out she has to fictionalize her experience so you're in this fictional world but then sharon breaks the fourth wall a number of times and it's also about immigrant identity in america she's iranian and her family are iranian and it's about the iranian community in a place called great neck where everyone's really in oh. each other's business my aunt and uncle live in great neck and
1: And so does my grandmother now.
0: Oh, there you go. Yeah. So that's where it's (laughs) I know it it well. It's there in the Iranian community there. And so as much as it's about Sharon and her fictional avatars, this sort of discovery and and thoughts about parenthood, it's also about what it means to be a part of a family, how dysfunctional families are still loving families, how a parent's marriage is always going to be a mystery to its children, but it's also always going to involve the children. Like it's really deep thinking stuff. And just excellent, really excellent. But it's not, it's not easy listening and it's not designed to be easy listening. And I think the best way to approach it is as a piece of art rather than something that you stick on while you're doing the washing up. Because I think you'll just get more out of it that way. I mean, of course, you can listen however you want. But I think that I felt very much once I really started to engage with it that I wanted to give it the kind of respect of having my full attention. And it really, really paid off. So yeah, Appearances by Sharon Mishihi, I would recommend sounds wonderful. Yeah, and it's something that I feel like I don't know anything similar that's happening over here. It feels like a very American way of using the the genre of like audio work. Um and I would love to know if anyone if anyone knows of any British people or U- Europeans who are making the same kind of audio work because it would be I'd just be fascinated to hear it, really. And very quickly, your last recommendation, Miss plitt My
1: last is another thing that I've already mentioned, but Another thing I have achieved in this period since the lockdown of COVID-19 is that I have finished The Sopranos.
0: Oh my god. We just finished series four,
1: so don't give me any spoilers. I will not give you any spoilers. I kind of knew what happened at the very end just because... Society I don't know. lost its mind at I that don't moment. Know. Do you not I have remember no that? Idea. No. I, I remember
0: people going insane about it. I but do anyway. remember people going nuts, but I have managed to edit it out of my memory. So, yeah, I'm excited, nervous, scared. We've actually had to take a breather because it was getting so intense
1: yeah and it gets more intense i'm afraid yeah i'm um, sure well the, there's only the one direction it can seasons. go in man yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's not gonna suddenly backtrack to the land of optimism is it <laughs> but i mean i like that it's a show that does not let you off the hook for being a viewer of these like violent immoral people as fascinating as they are and as multifaceted as they are it's a masterpiece
0: yeah, it is. I I think we're going to start series five tonight. So I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah. And
1: just the characters are fantastic. Yeah, they it, are. It, and they get better. They just get richer and deeper and more interesting.
0: Yeah. Amazing.
1: How about you? What's your last?
0: My last is, so I managed to sneak out to two exhibitions in between the lockdowns. And they were a gift and also very weird, a weird gift because it was also very strange being in a gallery with a mask on and I didn't find it I was hoping for it to be transcendent because it had been so long since I'd been in a space like that and and it wasn't because I couldn't get over the weirdness of it particularly at the National Gallery where it was very regimented and I went to see the Artemisia Gentileschi exhibition which which is amazing and fascinating and she's such a talent she was such a talented painter and the fact that she's not included in the canon of that kind of art It's patriarchy. We know all about that. But the one I really want to talk about actually was an exhibition by an artist called Maria Berrio or Maria Berrio. I don't know. She's um, from Latin America Mm. and uh, which was at the Victoria Miro Gallery. And honestly, if you just look her paintings up online, they will transport you. I found them so um, perfect. they are kind of all influenced by the idea of being in a post-apocalyptic space, but not one that is just full of detritus they're beautiful but they have that weird preternatural kind of stillness that you associate with being with the aftermath of something terrible essentially but they're incredibly beautiful and they're of mostly women alone in a particular environment so there was one that really just took me out of myself which was a woman in a deck chair looking depressed but above her is this incredible bougainvillea and the shadow it's casting and the quality of the light that she paints you can feel the heat on your body they're life-size as well so they're huge and you can just imagine yourself in them and I was standing in front of it just thinking oh my god what I would give to be somewhere hot and also bored at the same time (laughs) like that really specific feeling of being bored in the sun and being on a long holiday, so long that you don't fret for having a day where you're just bored and tapped out because you're just like, eh, I've got five more days. What are you kidding? I can have one of these, which is not the atmosphere that the painter was necessarily getting at. But um, <laughs> that was very much what I took from it. And that was an experience of just just a reminder of what we've got coming for us on the other side when we can go and be in these cultural institutions again and we can experience culture together with strangers with our friends with whatever we can be with the work like that that was a feeling that made me that did make me optimistic whereas the Mm -hmm. national gallery I just felt lost I just felt the loss of it all so you know come see come sorry I guess but yeah Maria Berrio look her up I think um it's a good one to look at on your computer screen
1: yeah and and thank you for raising the bar in terms of cultural (laughs) recommendations (laughs) (laughs) Was
0: far more sophisticated Carrie, I have definitely recommended as one of my cultural things once just going outside so I think (laughs) this is allowed I'm just
1: glad you're engaging with art with art pieces audio art pieces
0: all I'm doing is watching Bill and Ted catatonically so (laughs) if you're going to put your catatonic body in front of anyone let it be Keanu Reeves that's all I'm saying (laughs) (laughs) Wait, that sounds very, very, very dodgy. Yeah, no, no.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He'd be really nice to your catatonic body, though. He
0: would take care of you. He would never, yeah. He would would never never let anything happen to you. And on that note, (laughs) (laughs) Keanu Reeves makes me optimistic about masculinity. Good. That's the end. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a
1: podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners.
0: We'll be back in a couple of weeks. And until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt, and this is Literary Friction.